This week, I'm sharing an episode of a podcast called Hit of Happiness, where I spoke to Brian about artificial intelligence and consciousness, among many other things. This may have been my favorite interview so far, just because I love talking to Brian, but also because we explored so many topics in such a coherent fashion. And by the way, I'm recording this right now in uh, the middle of the hurricane in Los Angeles, and so you might hear a little bit of rain sound in the background, but uh, yeah, a little ambiance. Anyways, this interview is also a great setup for this three-part series that I'm working on about the myth of artificial intelligence, the nature of consciousness, transhumanism, spiritual machines, and metaphor. As my longtime listeners know, I like to do these deep dive episodes once in a while. So it's taking a while to do all the research and writing so I can finally record it, but I think it will be worth the wait. A few highlights from my conversation with Brian today include the fact that AI has pros and cons. It can automate monotonous work and allow more creativity, but also poses risks like job displacement that require broader societal solutions. Also, views on whether AI can achieve phenomenological consciousness vary and in the episode, in the interview with Brian, I, I offer several reasons why this might be potentially an intractable challenge. And as I will be talking about in my upcoming three-part series on the podcast, fears do exist about an uncontrolled, kind of run-rampant, super-intelligent AI. But I think these capabilities are often overstated. AI still relies on training data and does lack common sense. And there's so many other reasons that we probably won't get there anytime soon. And finally, the future remains uncertain around AI, but there are reasons, I think, for optimism if we can mindfully guide the progress of these systems and support its complementing our human strengths rather than replacing humans altogether. I think the key is maintaining humanity's agency and emphasizing humanity's potential alongside increasingly capable AI systems. So that's just a little bit of, of a preview of the conversation I had with Brian. So here we go. This is my interview with Brian. I think you're going to really enjoy it. Hello, fellow happiness seekers. Welcome back to the Hit of Happiness podcast, all about helping you reframe your reality, spread positivity, and transcend your perceived limits. I met today's guest at a dinner party in LA a few weeks ago. And I, it felt like I could have spent days picking his brain. He has over 25 years of experience in software engineering, law, product management, AI research, and yoga and meditation training, and is now dubbed an artificial intelligence philosopher. At a time where everyday humans are finding ways to leverage ChatGPT and other AI products on a daily basis, today's guest is here to help us understand some of the ethical and philosophical implications of artificial intelligence and machine learning in our lives. While I'm personally still a bit hesitant to use artificial intelligence to do my everyday tasks for Hit of Happiness, I'm hoping this conversation with Chad will convince me otherwise. So with that, Chad Woodford, welcome to the Hit of Happiness podcast. Thank you, Brian. It's so good to be here. It's awesome to have you, Chad. And I'm yeah. very excited for this conversation. Me too. But before we dive in, can you just give our audience a bit of a, who are you? Where are you from? What do you do? Yeah, sure. So that's kind of a long answer, but I'll try to keep it short. <laughs> yeah, uh, give us the long version. Give, we're here. Sure, we're here for that, right? <laughs> so I'm, I'm originally from upstate New York, and I've lived all over. I've lived in Vermont and Atlanta, Boulder, San Francisco, India. So now I'm here in LA, and yeah, I like to move around, I guess. 
I'm currently in grad school for philosophy, cosmology, and consciousness at the California Institute of Integral Studies in San Francisco. But I've also been, like you said, uh, an AI engineer, uh, technology lawyer, product manager. I was actually a filmmaker at one point. I went to film school. So I just, I like school. I like learning things. And yeah, so I'm focused on kind of bringing together a lot of my experiences, which includes AI, philosophy, and spirituality coming from the Eastern perspective too. And then, yeah, just the technology background as well. That's fascinating. You just listed like eight different topics that I want (laughs) to double click on. And I don't know if we have time to double click on all of them. But, you know, I think that one thing that I connected with you over was how we both really started in these corporate backgrounds. I was a consultant. You were a lawyer. Right. I'd love to hear your track from, you know, going to law school, becoming a lawyer to now studying philosophy and how that all happened in the first place. Yeah, this gets into, I mean, I think this is so relevant for your topic too, for happiness, because it gets into these questions about sort of dreams and happiness and conditioning and all that. So my journey was like where to start, right? So I think looking back, I made a lot of decisions in my life based on, I guess you can call it fear or practicality. And I was trying to find a way to fit my dreams and passions into a career that could make money. I grew up very working class, so I had this sort of like conditioning that you have to play it safe and do things that are practical career-wise. And so I became an engineer because I was good at math and science, and it's safe, it's practical, it makes money. But I did have this spark. I've always had this spark of wanting to have an impact and to change the world in some way or to help people in some way. And so the idea behind law school was to get into some kind of like consumer rights work or some kind of impact work, some kind of like policy work, something like that. And also, I wanted to be a writer for most of my life. I had this dream of being a writer. And so for me, with a practical mindset, the compromise was being a lawyer where you do actually do a lot of writing, but then of course you make a lot of money. So so yeah, that was the motivation behind that whole thing. And so I was a corporate lawyer, but I was doing some of that consumer work on the side, doing some pro bono and trying to find a way to kind of get into more of the policy work. And so in that process, and I think maybe you have a similar experience, I was really stressed out. Being a lawyer is very stressful and the corporate world, especially I was doing like a lot of large transactions and working in startups in Silicon Valley. And it was just kind of really draining. And so for me, I started to explore other things and and I started doing yoga and started really looking more into like inner questions or bigger questions or spiritual questions, that kind of thing. Sure. And I bet when you were, so these inner questions may have popped up while you were at the law firm. Right. And was the next step straight to India to answer those (laughs) questions or how did that work? Yes and no. I mean, the way I apparently do things is I sort of, I stick a toe in the water, but then I keep one foot on land. And then I keep kind of doing that back and forth until (laughs) I finally commit to something new. So it's, it's a process for me. So I did a teacher training while I was still a lawyer. And so I was teaching Mm -hmm. on the side and I was, I had my own law practice for a while and that was the way I was finding that kind of like satisfying the interest while keeping one foot on the practical side. But then I was fortunate enough to work at Twitter in the early days as a lawyer. And that mm. was, then gave me some financial, a financial windfall, which allowed me to take some time off. So then I started to write a novel about spiritual crisis and all these kind of big questions and did that full time. And so that was kind of the thing 
that writing the novel was me kind of opening a portal to step through because it gave me the excuse to research a bunch of things I was interested in and to have some experiential research to do things that I wanted to do. But I guess I'm the kind of person who can't just go out, go out and do the thing. I have to write a book to give me the excuse <laughs> to do the research to do the thing. So that included going to Burning Man and then eventually even plant medicine. I, I did ayahuasca initially because I had the idea to have my main character do ayahuasca. So all that, those experiences of going to Burning Man and getting more into going to Peru and all that is what then kind of led to going really deep into the spiritual path. Yeah. Wow. And I think it's really interesting the way you put that, because I think there's some people that can separate their professional lives and their spiritual paths. Mm -hmm. And they're able to say, you know, I work this nine to five or nine to seven, and then I can be spiritual the rest of my life. I can still go to Burning Man. I can still right. do whatever. Right. There's other people who feel the need for their entire life to be their spiritual journey and figure out how to make money on your spiritual journey. Yeah. And it sounds like you constantly kind of just waved back and forth and interweaved the two until slowly but surely you've gotten closer and closer to your life being the spiritual path. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I think that's right. I think that's right. I mean, it's interesting to frame it as a positive because I think sometimes I think of it as like me, maybe not having the courage to go just fully into the other direction. But at the same time, they do say that you shouldn't make your passion your vocation because then you'll come to hate it or something like that. I don't know if I believe that, but that's <laughs> a thing they say. Yeah. So, I mean, you went on this spiritual journey, you did ayahuasca, you went to Burning Man, then eventually you went to India. What were your major takeaways from these types of experiences that, you know, everyone can get something out of or everyone can learn from? Yeah. Well, what I wanted to say about that, actually, just to go back to your last question was, yeah, for me, it's part of a longer theme. So like, as I was saying before, the part of the motivation for law school was wanting to make a difference. And I kind of learned as I was pondering this question and starting to try to do things with law in that direction, I started to have this realization that this law professor, Lessig, Lawrence Lessig, had, which is you have to keep sort of moving the lever up in a sense. So he started off doing copyright reform because he was passionate about trying to help people have access to art and you know fair use and all that. And then he realized that the real challenge with trying to change copyright policy was actually that politics is broken in D.C., and so then he decided to pivot and address lobbying and just the ways that politics is broken in, in D.C. Because if you don't address that, then you can't really change the way laws are made and how, how they affect consumers. And so I was inspired by that. But then I took it to the next level, realizing that you actually can't really change things fundamentally unless you change the way people think and you change the kind of shared worldview that we have. And so that's ultimately how I got to philosophy. But yeah, so I think for me, the biggest way, the most effective way to make a difference in the world wasn't law at the end of the day. It was actually like philosophy in the sense of recognizing that everyone believes in this materialist worldview. And if we can just shift that and change the way they think, then they'll be open to, you know, more mundane things like policy change and different kinds of efforts in that direction. So anyways, I just wanted to kind of tie that together. Yeah, no, thank you for bringing that. And just to double click on that, the materialist worldview, you're saying because politics are so centered around financial implications and I guess the way 
companies will support uh, campaigns that to lead to things that might not be ethical or might not be the best for the world, that's stopping the love and light of the world. Is that what you're getting at? Or? <laughs> yeah, yeah, kind of. Yeah, it's like, so when I say the materialist worldview, what that means is this idea that goes back to kind of back to like Descartes or to the scientific revolution, which is yeah. that everything is matter. And because of that, there's nothing higher. There's no sort of like mystical realm or anything like that. There's just matter and just sort of deterministic, mechanistic reality, which is kind of meaningless and random. And everything we experience is just a fluke and, and all that. That's the materialist worldview. And I think it runs deep because it's kind of depressing to believe that. You know, a lot of people, whether you are an atheist or not, I think a lot of people just don't have any meaning to derive from that or don't know where to find meaning in their lives because of that. And so, yeah, the ways that, that can play out are multivaried. But in terms of your question about policy, for example, the way that can play out is that because we don't consider nature, for example, to be anything but a bunch of like raw resources for us to use to our advantage, then we don't make policy that preserves that because there's not a sacred element to the world. We don't approach it that way. Does that make sense? That does make sense. So yeah. it sounds like you found this passion. Mm -hmm. How did you start making an impact? And at what point did that come into play? Yeah, I mean, it's still in progress. You know, I think a large part, <laughs> a large part of me being a yoga teacher is that I, my experience with the yoga that I studied in India was that it, it expanded my consciousness and it changed the way I think. And I wanted to share that. And I do share that because I think it's so important to help people and give them practices that expand consciousness, that give them the direct experience of unity, which is what yoga is all about. And through that process, you know, you start to tap into your inherent bliss nature, which is a form of happiness. So that's one way I've been doing it by teaching yoga and offering different things in that space. But then in terms of shifting worldviews more broadly, I'm in school for philosophy, cosmology, and consciousness because I want to find other ways of doing that. And I think that actually, and we'll get into this when we get into the AI, I think the AI revolution that's happening is going to force us to reckon with our worldview and could actually be a vector for us to like shift the worldview and, and to kind of give humans a more important role in the world. Mm, I love that. And just a level set, you know, you kept on using the word expand consciousness and, uh -huh. you know, just to make sure everyone understands what it means to expand consciousness. And, you know, some people have watched that WeWork documentary where they talk about elevating the world's consciousness. Right. But right. what do you really mean when you say, you know, you teach yoga to expand consciousness and you were on a journey to expand your own consciousness? Yeah. So we can talk about what consciousness is first and then yeah. I can answer that. Yeah. Because it's relevant to AI too. I think a lot of the AI conversation is happening around consciousness. So yeah. yeah, so from a yogic standpoint, consciousness is fundamental, which is to say that everything is consciousness and consciousness is, so consciousness is like the fundamental substrate of reality. And the consciousness then is as a form of play and a form of love actually in the yoga worldview, it's creating the world with that intention. It's creating the world as a form of play. And we're all expressions of that. And so we're all kind of small pieces of this larger consciousness. It's if you put it in a Western philosophical framework, it's idealism. That's the philosophy. So when you say expand consciousness, what that means is like, 
kind of the first step, and this is the first step people often experience when they practice yoga, is you disidentify with the mind because the mind is just one small part of you. I think most people in the world today are primarily identified with their mind. And so the first step is that you start to realize like you're, you as yourself are so much bigger and broader than the mind. You're actually this consciousness. So we're moving out of identifying with the mind, expanding into this identification with consciousness. And then the yoga journey is starting to have experiences of, yeah, it's hard to talk about with words, but yeah, it's like one part of it is you start to let go of conditioning. So conditioning is the stuff you get from society and from your parents and from, you know, peers and colleagues that is maybe sort of like not totally true or not helpful to you or helpful to society. These are kind of like wrong notions, you know, small ideas, that kind of thing. So you're getting rid of the conditioning and that through that process, you're starting to become more and more sort of free in a sense, more liberated. And as you go through that process, you're starting to expand your consciousness to include more and more of your bigger self and bringing in more and more of this unity experience. I don't know if that makes sense, but that's the basic process. Got it. And for those who are new to this concept, what would you say is the first step they should take? Is it go to a yoga class? (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I think that could be helpful. You know, it's interesting because in the West, we primarily identify yoga as stretching. And Mm -hmm. there's so much more to it than that. But at the same time, because we're so disembodied, like in the sense that we're so not in our bodies, we're so kind of living in our heads all the time. I think part of the reason that that has been so helpful and is such a good access point is that we should start with the body. So if you go to a yoga class, you know, it's called asana. That's the stretching part of the yoga practice. If you go to an asana class, that's going to help you to get into your body. And then there are, you know, that practice alone is so good at putting you into a meditative state through the body. And you can have these experiences in that practice of unity consciousness, of expanding consciousness, that kind of thing. And then once you've done that for a little while, then yes, you can start to explore other parts of the yoga practice or other modalities beyond yoga too. The parts of yoga that really helped me especially were pranayama, so working with the breath, and that can be breath work. Also, these things called kriyas, which are the most effective and powerful for releasing conditioning and expanding your consciousness and that kind of thing. So kriyas are primarily associated in the West with kundalini yoga, but they're actually a much broader tradition and a much older tradition than that. And the the kinds of kriyas that I studied are from another tradition in India. But yeah, so there's Kriya, there's meditation, there's a lot of mantra you can do that really helps with this. There's these sacred rituals. There's all kinds of different aspects to the practice. Yeah. Got it. Thank you. So that makes sense. And, you know, I'm glad we kind of level set it on consciousness and what it is for humans, because I think one direction I want to also take this is the consciousness of AI and what that looks like. So Why don't we kind of now shift forward and first, can we define what AI is for all our listeners and then we'll kind of dive into the meat of this? Yeah. So this is a good, good question because in a way it's hard to define actually. So I'll come at it from a couple different directions. First of all, I think at the most basic level, it's just making computers more like, think more like people or behave more like people. And that can be like 
anything from, I don't know, learning how to solve problems or identifying patterns. These are the kinds of things that it can be. But what's interesting about AI is that we've been throwing this phrase around for decades and it seems to be a moving target in a way. So there's this great quote from Pamela McCorduck who says that AI suffers the perennial fate of losing claim to its acquisitions, which eventually and inevitably gets pulled inside the frontier, a repeating pattern known as the AI effect or the odd paradox. AI brings in a new technology People become accustomed to this technology. It stops becoming AI at that point and a newer technology emerges. So it's like what AI is, is always like just across the horizon. Mm. And so that's one way to think about it. But to bring it back down to earth here, AI is basically a collection of different technologies. Right now, the hot one is machine learning and deep learning. Mm -hmm. And that is allowing computers to be very good at pattern recognition. That's basically what that is. It's based on this technology called neural networks. And so it's a technique where they try to model a theory about how the brain works and how the mind arises from the brain. So it's this very actually materialist theory that the mind is an epiphenomenon of brain processes. And so if we can just recreate a kind of virtual version of neural networks of the neurons in the brain, then similar intelligence will naturally arise. And so that's where we are with machine learning. Back in the day, like in the 20th century, there was another kind of AI called expert systems, which was more like they thought that if they could just plug in like millions of sort of true statements, that that would help create intelligence. Like, you know, men are mortal and I don't know, car tires are made of rubber and all these things. If you just put all these things into a giant database, they thought that would be AI, but that didn't work out so well. So <laughs> anyways, yeah, that's, that's kind of the long-winded answer to AI. What's interesting too, the last thing on that is that AI is really good at sort of like playing chess and playing Go. Famously, it beat the world champion in chess and the world champion in Go in the past couple of decades. So it's very good at these like pure reason kind of problems and constrained problems that are games and that kind of thing. Language is also very accessible, but it's not very good at like walking, you know, seeing the world in certain ways and interacting with the world in certain ways. Yeah, it's interesting. It sounds to me like AI is great at logical activities, but struggles with a little bit more outside of the box activities. Is that is that yeah. kind of what you're getting at? Currently, currently, yeah. That's right. Right. And I, I'm sure at some point AI will catch up and be more creative than all of us. But for yeah. now, we have a little bit of a head start, right? Yeah, for now. <laughs> so let's kind of talk about that, where today... People are using ChatGBT to send emails. They're using it to come up with marketing campaigns. And I think that's what most people experience of AI in their lives. What is AI beyond that? Like what else is going on with it? Mm -hmm. And also, what are the reasons that you think we have to be excited about AI today? Yeah, I mean, so yeah, ChatGPT is the popular thing right now. And this, it's, that's part of the generative AI explosion that happened in last fall. So you've got generative text. You've also got generative images. So that can be like Dolly or Midjourney, those kinds of things, stable diffusion. And so basically what's happening there is it's been trained on a very large set of data, like in the case of text, millions and millions and millions, billions probably of documents and tweets and internet things. It's been trained on that to learn how to talk or how people talk and to learn a little bit about some topics. And then it's very good based on sort of regurgitating that kind of what it's learned, basically. And so it's doing that through 
this complicated process that includes a kind of a statistical phenomenon where it's like, yeah, it's, it's a very detailed kind of thing. But basically, it's generating things that are the simulation of intelligence. So it doesn't actually understand like what it's saying, for example. It doesn't like it doesn't understand conceptually or semantically like what a sentence means. It just knows that that is a very plausibly sort of realistic sounding thing that someone might say. So that's mm-hmm. kind of the state of the art. You know, some people call it an elaborate autocomplete or something like that. And so that's the current state of AI. What AI researchers want to create is true intelligence and what they call artificial general intelligence, which is also called super intelligence. And that's the idea that it's a computer. It's an artificial intelligence that could basically reason like a person, speak, you know, confidently about any topic, solve problems in any domain. That's kind of the longer term goal. So, yeah, so I think we can talk more about that super intelligence thing in a minute. But the reasons I think I'm excited about AI is that I think it's going to automate a lot of monotonous work that people do and free us up to do more creative things. Or it's going to be more of a collaborator with us so we can kind of use it alongside of us to create things, to solve problems, to do kind of mundane work and that kind of thing so that we can then be freed up to focus on what matters, community, family, being of service creativity of different kinds. So I think it's, I like the fact that it's going to be like a collaborator. I think it's in the short term, it's going to kind of like shift what people do. I think it's going to like, you know, a lot of white collar workers are going to lose their jobs. We can talk about that too. But yeah, and I think even like another positive that might be seen as a negative is the way that it's going to disrupt technology. So this is a big unknown, but I think in general, there's this idea in technology policy of Schumpeterian destruction or creative destruction, which is this idea that the more that technology or technology companies fail, the better long term, because then new and better things arise. It's kind of this, you know, it's kind of the same idea with Darwinian evolution or just the way that life works, you know, like things die so that new things can come in. And so like AI, I think is going to disrupt, for example, Google search. Like I think Google search is it's fascinating because Google's in a tough position where their bread and butter is search and search advertising. But they also see the writing on the wall in the sense that they're going to have to start replacing traditional search results with just like kind of a chat GPT or BARD equivalent type thing where you just type in your question or what you want to know. And it gives you the answer without showing you so much the web results. And so that's going to affect Google is going to affect their business model. It's going to affect the web and how the web is designed and created and content. And then, of course, on that topic, like it's going to come in and it's going to change like Wikipedia potentially and the way that content is created. Because a lot of the content now on the web will be generated by AI. And so all these things are creating a lot of chaos on the web right now. But I think ultimately that might lead to something even more interesting. More interesting. More interesting because. Why? Yeah. Can you elaborate on that? I mean, I don't know exactly, but I think, I mean, there's a lot of challenges with that. I'll admit there's a lot of challenges because then we start to get into like, how do we know what's true? How do we know what's real? There's a lot of misinformation risks with AI generating content. But I think I don't have a specific, like, I don't know what's going to happen on the other side of this intense disruption that's happening on the web and with search. But I have to think that something interesting will come out of that. Now, again, it's going to create a lot of disruption and that disruption includes 
again, jobs, I think. And so right. that we can talk about that because I think that's a whole other thing that we need to grapple with. Yeah. I mean, for me, I think that's the main reason to be scared of AI. It's right. the fact that all these white collar jobs will be eliminated, I would think within a year or two based off of what I'm seeing. Yeah. Maybe it's longer, but for, for trust reasons, because a lot of humans don't necessarily trust AI yet. I think with anything over time, it becomes the way. Mm-hmm. Like, what is that going to look like? Are we headed towards like a Wally scenario where yeah. people just have universal socialism support and they're right. not working at all? Like, what is the future? Yeah, that's a good question. And I want to say, I want to be clear. I'm not like an AI evangelist. I feel it's very complicated and I'm personally somewhat conflicted about it. I'm not some kind of like naive person who just thinks that AI is going to be great and there's nothing to worry about. I think there's a lot of things to worry about. I think those things are not so much the fact that some super intelligence is going to kill humanity, but it's more these concerns about jobs and the economy and what it means for that and also misinformation. So I think to answer your question about the jobs and all that stuff, I think, yeah, I mean, the Wally scenario is, I mean, that is dystopian, obviously, and unappealing, but that actually seems better than some of the alternatives. Like, because that assumes that we'll actually figure out how to redistribute wealth and support people. I'm not even sure if we can do that. I don't think anybody is sort of grappling so much with the amount of disruption that's coming. I think it's like a tsunami that's coming. And I think some people are sort of aware of it, but not enough people are actively working to address it. So I hope at a basic level that we can achieve Wally, <laughs> because that means that we're at least taking care of people. But then mm-hmm. this gets into this conversation around universal basic income, UBI. And I don't know a ton about that, but I mean, it seems to me like the conversation around that entirely revolves around your belief about human nature. And so I think the UBI people, they think that they have a very, very optimistic view of human nature, which is to say that if you give people money, if if you support them, they won't just be couch potatoes watching TV all day, that they'll actually go out and be productive and create things just for the fun of it, just for the pure joy of it. And that will result in a whole other like almost like a new renaissance in a way. So that's, I like that idea. I'm attracted to that idea, but it's hard to tell based on how people are right now. Like if you look around, a lot of people do watch TV and they do kind of numb out in different ways and they aren't just like doing art projects or whatever at home. I think part of that is because the world is too overwhelming or they don't feel supported in certain ways. And so I think they do those things because it helps them to kind of distract from these feelings. And this gets back to kind of another angle that I could have taken from the previous conversation, which is that I feel like a big challenge that we face today is that the predominant kind of feeling tone of society right now is fear in different ways. And I think like a big part of my mission is to try to address that in different ways. And I think if we can get people to either learn how to move into fear or to let go of fear, that potentially could change everything. So I think the fear is part of why people are not inherently sort of creative when they have free time. I think there's so much going on there emotionally. No, that's interesting. And I I think that's a worthy 
tangent of you said your kind of your core mission is related to fear. So what is it about fear specifically? Mm -hmm. And how did that lead you to this realm of AI? Is it because you want to help mitigate the fears of people as we enter this new age? Yeah, kind of. I mean, it's part of my current mission is to comfort and inform people about AI. Because I think Mm -hmm. there's a lot of fear around AI. I think there's a lot of fear mongering happening around AI. I think not always intentionally, but I think a lot of people like, I don't know if you've heard of this guy, but there's this guy, I want to get his name right. Yudkowsky, Elizier Yudkowsky, I think he's running around sounding alarm bells saying that we're, you know, if we don't do something immediately, something drastic, AI is going to kill us, you know, and he's been saying this for decades and people are listening, you know, he had a TED talk, I think last month where he was saying this. But yeah, there's people going around, you know, saying that, or there's these transhumanists who think that the solution to everything is just for all of us to upload our consciousness into machines and then stop worrying about being people in bodies. (laughs) But yeah, so my mission is to comfort people and and kind of like try to counteract a lot of that conversation that's happening around, especially super intelligence, but also just in general with jobs and all that. And because I think the way to change the world in a way is to kind of help people understand that. There's nothing to be afraid of ultimately, and the the more you can cultivate that feeling, the more happy and powerful and successful you're going to be in your life. And that's a big part. It goes back to yoga too. I mean, the Bhagavad Gita, this book, one of the most famous books in yoga, the ultimate message of that book is that no experience is too big for your soul to handle. And so I just think that if people could have that feeling, like that feeling deep inside, it would really change the world. And side note, by the way, Oppenheimer, the movie, Oppenheimer was very, very much in love with the Bhagavad Gita. So Hmm. interesting little side note there. You think that led to the way he went about his work? I mean, and for those who are listening, you probably know about the movie that just came out, Oppenheimer. He's the gentleman who led the project to create the atomic bomb, which was eventually dropped on Japan. How do you think that impacted his work? Because I think that's that's fascinating that he was a big fan of this yeah. yogic philosophy that in theory is all about, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but because you're the yoga expert, <laughs> but hopefully about love, about you know universal consciousness, everything happening for us, not to us. Yeah, yeah he created probably the deadliest weapon of all time. Yeah. So what do you think he actually got out of this book? Well, yeah, that's interesting. I mean, you know, I mentioned that, but I don't really know his whole story. I haven't the movie's based on a biography that's supposed to be quite good. I don't know the timeline there, but I do know that he had a lot of regrets about his role in creating the atomic bomb. And I think they say the Bhagavad Gita can be understood on seven levels. And so I think it there's a progression and I think for those who don't know the Bhagavad Gita, it's basically the story of this warrior Arjuna who The book starts out and he's facing this battle where he's supposed to fight his cousins and he he just doesn't want to. He throws down his weapons and he says, I can't. This is not right. It's not right to commit violence against people that I know and love. And and Krishna comes to counsel him and teach him yoga and to teach him basically that he has to live the life that he's been given and perform the things that he's going to perform from a state of love and compassion and and state of yoga. And it takes a lot to kind of unpack all that because it's, he does pick up his weapons and fight in the battle and it's a battle that's happening on like a different level. So anyways, I think Oppenheimer maybe 
took some lessons from that and thought, well, I'm an expert in this field, so I should serve that role. And, you know, the consequences can be what they are. But then I think later in life, he understood the book at a deeper level and had some regrets about his role in that. So, yeah. Right, right. So I guess on that note, here we are, I guess, 70 years later, give Mm -hmm. or take. And we have this new technology, artificial intelligence, that is probably, it's going to change the world in ways we can't even imagine. Are we headed towards world peace or World War III right now? (laughs) (laughs) What a loaded question. So this, this brings us into, I think, question of ethics, because I think that, so I, I do agree that not enough is being done to shape AI in the right ways. So I think it all depends on how we create it. I think the AI is going to reflect the mindset of the people who are making it. And currently, it's mostly being created by people, engineers mostly, and product managers who have a certain kind of mindset, but they're not it's not being informed, I feel, enough by, let's say, right brain people. And so you've only got left brain people working on this stuff. And so the technology is going to be left brain. I think if we could, and there's nothing wrong with being left brain, but I think it's a little bit one sided, or it's a little bit like, let's imagine if the whole world or the whole society was just engineers, we wouldn't necessarily want that they have a good role, they have an important role to play. But we want to have other people involved, I think, in the creation of AI, you know, and that includes ethicists, people who are trained in ethics, philosophy, that kind of thing. AI is going to be a reflection of our humanity, and we want it to reflect the highest and best version of humanity and not the past, you know, because part of the problem with machine learning, for example, is that it's trained on essentially data that reflects the past. And I think we can all agree that maybe we weren't our best selves in the past, however, you know, however, you know, so I think it's important to train it from the right mindset, to train it on the right things, to help it to understand human values and to incorporate those things. Like a good example that's happening today that I'm inspired by is there's a company called Anthropic, who is a bunch of people from OpenAI, who's the ChatGPT company. They went and created a, a different AI company because they wanted to make the whole mission of their company, ethical and humanitarian in a sense, AI. So they have this alternative AI chatbot called Claude, and it's been trained what they are calling a constitution. And so they this thing has a constitution, which is to say that it has like these basic guiding principles that have been hard coded into it that include, you know, sort of like human rights and sort of different, you know, different concepts about privacy and, and all these things that we want to the AI to value. And so I like that project. That's, so that's one example of, of how we can sort of shape and guide AI in a different way. One last thing on that is there is another project or a couple other projects where AI is being trained on wisdom or like spiritual texts and that kind of thing. And so I'm curious about that too. I think that I haven't looked into it, but it might be helpful. It might be interesting. I don't know. Yeah, it's interesting because just like different people are more spiritual, different people are more left brain, different people are more right brain. It'll be interesting to see if there becomes a universal artificial intelligence that everyone uses or if people just gravitate towards the one that aligns with their current yeah. mindsets. It's almost like we're like trending towards we have the 
American AI, we have the North Korean AI, we have the Switzerland AI, you know, where it's different philosophies. And that's kind of scary because if everyone's using what they already believe, it actually feels like it'll just continue to separate us because it'll reinforce what the way people already feel. Yeah. I think one of the biggest challenges we have with doing what I was just talking about is two things. It's the pressures I think we feel internationally. So part of the reason that let's say the US government is not regulating AI companies is because they're, I think, partly because they're concerned that if we do that, it'll slow us down relative to China or to Russia or even to India or something like that. So I think this is one part of the reason that AI companies are are just left to kind of self-regulate. And then the other thing is capitalism. You know, I think these companies within the US even, you know, Microsoft versus Google versus I guess, Facebook or Meta or whatever, they're all in an arms race to see who can have, kind of like you were saying, to have the most popular AI. And because of that, I think everyone's rushing and I think they're not taking enough precautions. Right, right. So I have a few thoughts on that. Yeah. First of all, it's better to go slower, in my opinion, than, you know, put something into the world that could have serious negative implications. Mm -hmm. And then the second thing you brought up about capitalism, and I think that's especially relevant to America, yeah. like, is capitalism even sustainable yeah. as all these technologies take away all these white collar jobs? And I mean, and I would like to think that as many jobs will be taken away, jobs will be created, but that might not be the case. Like, is capitalism even possible in the future? Yeah, that's a great question. And it's funny because I feel like not too long ago, asking that question could make you sound like, I don't know, like a sort of Pollyanna kind of communist or something. You know, people would criticize you for, I don't know, being a lefty or something. But but I feel like part of what AI is doing, it's making all these questions kind of crucial and kind of mainstreaming these questions. I mean, Ezra Klein, the podcaster and New York Times columnist, he's asking this question on his podcast, you know, is, is capitalism viable? Is, is that part of the problem? And I don't know the answer to that. I think it seems like everyone I know is talking about how we're in late stage capitalism and it feels like a thing that could definitely at least use a reboot or uh, an upgrade or something because not to get too much into the history and the philosophy, but as some people probably know, capitalism came out of, in a way, like the same thinking that that created materialism. So like a lot of the people like the British philosophers, John Locke and Thomas Hobbes and all these people, you know, were the ones who were part of the materialist philosophy movement. And so capitalism kind of came out of that same kind of thinking, you know, and and I think the reason I'm saying that is because it feels like we're in a time when all of these ideas that arose in the 17th and 18th centuries are maybe seeing their expiration date or something. So I don't know. I mean, obviously, communism is not the answer. Right. <laughs> it feels like, it's funny, I was just reading for for school, I was just reading this thing where they're talking about how the theme of the 20th century was capitalism versus communism. And it feels like the 21st century is us sort of like transcending that duality and finding a third way of some kind. Who knows what it is, though? Right, right. I guess the only time will tell. Yeah. So with that, I think... Let's dive into super intelligence. And I guess we've talked about intelligence. What is super intelligence? (laughs) Oh, man, this is one of my favorite topics. I'm actually, I've been working forever, it feels like, on a podcast and YouTube episode about super intelligence. So I I love talking about this. 
it's fascinating because it requires you to take a step back and to ask, like, what is intelligence? And when somebody says, you know, AI is going to become this super intelligence, you know, like Ray Kurzweil, Kurzweil and people like that are saying this, it's like, what does it mean for something to be far more intelligent than us? Does that mean that they're just better at like math and science? They're, they're faster, more efficient at pure reason and problem solving? Or does it mean like if intelligence evolves to a certain level, does it become wisdom instead? You know, like what is intelligence exactly? A lot of the fears about super intelligence is that they'll be so smart that they'll hack into some thing, like they'll figure out some kind of like biological phenomenon that we don't understand. They'll create some kind of like super virus and then humanity will be dead. Or the, the famous like fear that people talk about is like they'll realize that to maximize their resources, to create more of themselves, they'll like mine all the metals that they need, the precious metals they need and all the precious minerals. And then they'll they realize that they need, it's kind of like the matrix. They, they realize that they right. need people to be resources and all that. But I don't know if that's the case. I think if they were very smart, they might not be so like, I, I don't know. We're just creating, it feels like we're creating, we watch too many dystopian movies and we we see this like dark side of humanity. And I think we're almost imagining that it would be, it would be like that. It would be like these kind of violent, mindless things. But I don't know. I think it's hard to tell what a super intelligence would be. And I want to say, like, there's a lot of fear that it's going to happen in the next year, two years, 10 years. You know, I think uh, Ray Kurzweil said by the end of the 20s or something. But I'm not convinced because we don't have the technology, I feel. So this goes back to how I was defining AI. Currently, it's machine learning. And machine learning is based on inductive reasoning. And that's only one of three kinds of ways that people think. And so not to get too far into the to this direction but basically the way we think is there's three kinds there's deductive reasoning where you have a general premise and then you can apply that to specific circumstances so for example all men are mortal socrates is a man therefore socrates is mortal that's deductive reasoning inductive reasoning is just noticing patterns and drawing general conclusions from those patterns that's machine learning and so yeah if you show a computer a million photos of dogs, they're going to eventually realize that this blobby thing that has hair and two eyes and whatever is a dog. <laughs> but that's just one, another kind of reasoning. But the third kind of reasoning that AI has not yet addressed is abductive reasoning. And that's where we have these flashes of insights and we have inspiration. And this is the kind of thinking that happens with inventors and detectives and those kinds of people who have been spending a lot of time with a problem and then all of a sudden one day the solution emerges and there's no way to like that we have come across so far to automate that process and so until i feel and this is maybe a controversial opinion i don't know but i feel like until we've addressed abductive reasoning there's not going to be uh super intelligence because Superintelligence requires an understanding of semantics, an understanding of cause and effect. It requires a map of the world and how the world works. And if you look closely enough at, at machine learning and, and at these machine learning programs like ChatGPT, they're very brittle. Like they don't actually understand what they're saying. They don't actually understand how the world works. And so they're very easy to like to throw off. And so it's like a magic trick. You know, they're, they seem highly intelligent, but then as soon as you present them with some 
problem or challenge that's outside the realm of what they've been trained on, they, they fall apart. So anyways, I think super intelligence, we might get there, but I don't think we have the technology yet to, to make it. And I'm not convinced that when we do make it, I'm not convinced that it will be inherently like evil or something. Right, right. And back to abductive reasoning, how does that compare to like the human version of intuition or subconscious? Yeah, well, that's an interesting question, actually. So I think it is related in some sense. And I think once you get into the conversation about intuition and the subconscious, that gets into a whole other series of questions about where thinking happens in the inner person. So I think part of this too is that thinking is happening. The mind is not strictly located in the brain, in my opinion. I think that the mind is actually spread throughout the whole body as a field. And I think the brain is the connection between the mind and the consciousness we were talking about earlier. That's a very idealistic philosophy, but I think intuition and unconscious that Carl Jung might have talked about are coming from places in that greater mind or that greater sort of awareness that are coming from somewhere that is not strictly like neurons firing in the brain is how I feel. So that's a whole other conversation about sort of like where the mind is located and how it arises. Because again, in conventional AI theory is, and conventional neuroscience too, the, the theory is that the mind is arising as an epiphenomenon of the brain. But this is actually the hard problem of consciousness that they, this is the kind of what they call it in AI. The hard problem of consciousness is like, how is it created from raw matter? Like how does consciousness arise or how could it arise from matter? And it's called the hard problem because we don't even begin to know the answer to that question. Like we can create a computer that simulates sort of access consciousness is what they call it, which is like, I see a symbol, I see a letter, and then I process that. And then it, there's an output. That's like what we, what we can simulate. But the experience of having like tasting a strawberry or watching a sunset or listening to music, a song that really moves you, we have no idea what's going on there. I mean, there's a, the way they say it in philosophy is like, there is the experience of being Brian, but like, how can we possibly recreate that in a machine? Right. Yeah. And that makes me think of like Dr. Keltner's work on awe mm. and how we create, right. feel, have these feelings of like awe where it's almost like we have a, a sixth sense that's, yeah. you can't really bring that back to logic or reason. It's just something that happens. And how can AI have that experience if they're only being programmed through a state of practical logic or, or things that are explainable yeah. per se? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. I think this goes back to how I think that AI is forcing us to face all these questions that we've been kind of putting off for a long time. Like going back to Descartes again, he just decided basically like, oh, there's something going on with the mind or the, the soul or the consciousness. Who knows what it is? Let's put it aside and just focus on matter. And so we've never really grappled with that division. And I think we are being forced to now. I think it might get to the point where we realize, oh, the reason we can't create AI superintelligence or conscious AI is because consciousness is what we are. And the brain is just helping us to tap into that thing that we are. And if that's the case, then we may never be able to create an AI that's like us. Or if we do, it has to be with a different technique. I actually am very interested in the question of quantum computing and AI because Roger Penrose, who's 
famous for being one of Stephen Hawking's colleagues. He had a theory with this other guy, I think he was a neuroscientist, that the mind and consciousness is actually created somewhere in the, in the quantum, quantum mechanics. Like if you look deeply enough inside these proteins in the brain, maybe something's happening at the quantum level inside those proteins that's creating it. So maybe quantum computing could get us there. I don't know. Yeah, that's fascinating. And, you know, it, it sounds to me like it will be very challenging to get to the point where we can confidently say that AI is conscious or the mm -hmm. super intelligence has a level of consciousness. Do you see a world where, you know, we're half humans, half robots, and, you know, the, <laughs> the AI is using our uh -huh. consciousness as humans? We have these chips in our arms or something. And, you know, you've seen this in movies, but yeah. as we're talking about this now in my head, it's like, that doesn't seem that far-fetched because the AI kind of needs our consciousness. Yeah, that's a great question. You know, and you're, you're getting into like another fascinating topic, which is transhumanism. And there's a whole movement, for those who aren't aware, there's a whole movement primarily based out of Bay Area and San Francisco of transhumanists who believe that the future is us merging with machines and augmenting ourselves in different ways with machines or becoming machines in some way. And that's the solution to saving the human race. That's the solution to like longevity and immortality and all this stuff. And that is so fascinating because I think, again, it's coming from the materialist worldview in a sense, but also, yeah, I think so transhumanism is like sneaking spirituality back in through the back door. Like they don't want to talk about spirituality. They don't want to acknowledge these things, but then they're sort of saying things like, well, the mind is just a pattern, a large pattern that we can somehow upload into a machine and then it can live on beyond that. And it's like, if you really, like, if you just change some of the words, they're kind of talking about the soul. Like, they're kind of bringing the soul back in through, like, techno science. So that is fascinating to me. But people who don't, aren't aware should know that, to a large extent, Silicon Valley is ruled and run by transhumanists. So Elon Musk, for example, is a transhumanist. And so this, I think, is potentially a problem because a lot of the decisions that are being made in terms of company policies and what to focus on are being made based on this idea that we're going to start to merge with machines. And I just want to say, I personally feel like one of the main themes in this conversation about AI and superintelligence and all this, and this idea that we can like just kind of relinquish our responsibility to solving our big problems to AI is that it diminishes the role of the human. And I think we need to like somehow rediscover a belief in the potential of people. I think that people can be brilliant and can solve all these problems. I don't think we need to sort of, I don't know, hand over our, our agency and our responsibility and our potential to machines. It's interesting. I had a conversation about that yesterday where it's like, it was on a very simple level, but for example, like, at Head of Happiness, we have weekly blog posts. And mm -hmm. it's like, sure, I could have artificial intelligence write my weekly blog posts and get to know my tone by reading past blog right. posts right. and save me a few hours a week. But that doesn't mean I can't do it, A. And B, I actually get a lot out of that process. I yeah. enjoy the journey. I, I enjoy having to synthesize my thoughts. And it forces me to observe my reality in a certain way. Absolutely. So there's, it's almost like, sure, AI can do all these things. But 
by letting AI take over all these processes from us, is it really enhancing the human experience? Mm-hmm. And to that note, is it really enhancing our happiness? Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's a good question. I, I think there might be like a middle way there somehow because, for example, like I, when I create podcast episodes or YouTube content, I will use AI to, for example, suggest like 10 titles that might work for the episode. And then I'll look at those and maybe I'll use one. Maybe one of those will be inspiration for the ultimate title. But I don't have any problem with doing that. And like that, in a sense, I don't know, like, yes, it makes you feel a little bit less creative, maybe. But also, I think it just moves like it just allows you to take your creativity to a, in a different direction. Like you, you can then focus your creativity on some other aspect of what you're making and not spend so much time on the title. I don't know. I think right. there are certain places where AI can have a role, I think. Right. It allows you to prioritize where you want to be creative. Yeah. Because at the end of the day, we are all limited on time. So yeah. choose how to use your time wisely. I think so. I think so. To kind of land this plane a little uh-huh, bit, uh-huh. you know, we've talked about a lot of the pros of AI. We've talked about a few of the cons and a, th- a few things that are terrifying. Right. I don't want our listeners to leave thinking the world is about to end. <laughs> so what what is would you say is, you know, to sum it up, the main reason for optimism and the main action that people can be taking to future-proof themselves in this AI world? Mm, yeah. I think a lot of it is still unknown. So, But I think the reason for optimism is that there's a lot to say there. But at a basic level, there seems to be, if you look back over history, there seems to be an arc to human evolution. And that arc, you know, I'm kind of inspired by a little bit by Martin Luther King, who was actually quoting somebody else. But you know, the arc of the universe bends towards ultimate progress for humanity. You know, this, of course, brings in a little bit of idealism and yogic philosophy in the sense that there's so much more going on than just the things that people are doing. I think that nature has an intelligence. And I think that, you know, nature is, has a project it's working on. And it seems like nature is suffering because we're in this climate change era but I think there is a sort of death and rebirth process happening with humanity right now. Sorry, this is a long answer. But but basically, like, there does seem to be, you know, like, there's something deeper going on that we maybe don't understand. So I think in terms of, like, people surviving, humanity surviving, I think we will. I think it just, it, it might require a lot of, it's hard right now. I think this time we're going through is challenging for most people in different ways. So I think the reason to be optimistic is that that's a very deep kind of philosophical answer but also because i think that ai is like i was saying earlier it's 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 going to help us solve a lot of problems in collaboration with uh, ourselves it's going to free us up from certain things and then the only question is like how do we what do we do about people who are displaced by ai who haven't properly prepared for that displacement and so that gets into like how can you prepare more specifically for for ai I don't know exactly, but I do think that the things you can do include familiarizing yourself with AI and how to use it well. I don't think we should be like, I mean, not everyone needs to do that. But if you have the inclination, if you have the interest, learn how to use these tools, try to stay abreast of what's happening. And to the extent you can, like, if you know somebody who's working in AI or you work in a company that's creating AI, I don't know. I think I would like to see more people try to bring like right brain thinking into the development of AI. And, and that is to say like, it's hard because people need to make a living, but 
I would like to see more people going into humanities and not so many going into STEM, you know, science, technology, engineering, and all that. So I think we need both. I think we're in a time where we need to have people who are coming from the humanities side. So yeah, I mean, I don't know. So it's if you're worried about it, learn how to use it and also work on yourself, like learn how to be happy from the inside, which is a lot of what you talk about. Cultivate happiness from the inside and stop trying to find it through some external thing. Hmm. That's beautiful. That's beautiful. And I really do like the idea that you talked about this earlier in the podcast of like, maybe we are on the precipice of a renaissance Mm -hmm. where, you know, because more of AI is going to take over some of the STEM type of work in this world. You know, it really does give us the space to write and read and draw Mm -hmm. and, you know, really tap into the creators within all of us, which is an exciting future because I think that's in many ways a key to feeling alive and feeling happy. Yeah, totally. Yeah. I mean, I think because, you know, AI seems creative, but it can only create things based on what people have already created. So, it gives us an opportunity to create new things. Yeah, I love that. I love that. So for anyone listening, you know, once you put down this podcast, why don't you go draw or why don't you go, you know, use the other side of your brain for a little bit. Yeah, 100%. If there's anything good out of this. But all right, so this was awesome. Thank you so much, Chad. I think I learned a ton about AI, which I think just learning about it helps to get rid of the fear. If you don't know anything it's a scary concept because you know that it's changing our lives dramatically. You don't really know how. And I think this right. debunked a lot of a lot of that for me. So I'm, I feel educated and I'm Good. sure our listeners do as well. I guess one last question before we wrap it up. You know, it's one thing that struck me by just speaking with you both in the past and today is just how much knowledge you've amassed and how you've taken, you know, all these journeys. You're a lawyer, yeah. you were an engineer, you're a yogi, you know, you're, you're just have this love for learning and this immense curiosity. Like where did this come from? A and B, like who are your role models? You're like the most inspirational people mm-hmm. you've met along that journey. Yeah. Yeah. So you're asking where my curiosity came from. Is that, or. Yeah. I'd love to know, like, I think a lot of us, and, mm-hmm. and I guess to give some context on where that questions come from. Yeah. A lot of us are looking for our thing. A lot of us are looking for, you know, the thing that sparks us, the thing that makes us feel alive. And I think you're like, I know you're not a millennial, but (laughs) you know, the modern millennial jumps from job to job to job to job. You've gone on all these routes trying to find your way and find that thing that makes you happy, makes you feel alive. And it seems to me like you've been following your curiosity from before it was cool to follow your curiosity. Because, <laughs> you know, yeah. I think the older older generations are used to staying at a job for 40 years and then retiring. Right. And, you know, kind of just that like cookie cutter American dream. Right. I think it's cool how you broke off that path at a much earlier point in your life. And like, were there people that helped you with that? That's kind of what, where my head is. Yeah, I guess I was kind of like an early prototype of a millennial so. I've always been curious, but I think, you know, before I even knew about Joseph Campbell, I was kind of following his advice, which is, I'm sure people have heard this, Joseph Campbell, who is this great mythologist who really highlighted and kind of created the idea of the hero's journey or just identified it as a recurring theme in, in world mythology. He said, just follow your bliss. And I know a lot of people say that it's like a catchphrase and, you know, it's been kind of like misinterpreted, I think, too. But what he meant was, he was actually a yogi. So he he studied yogic philosophy early in his life. And so there's this idea in yoga that the truth of yourself is is that your consciousness 
And the truth, like the nature of consciousness is bliss. And so what he meant by that was that if you follow your bliss, if you just do like follow, like do whatever is interesting to you and whatever makes you feel blissful or whatever makes you feel happy, then you'll access like expand your consciousness. And that will like once you're more tapped into unity consciousness from a yogic standpoint, the more things will flow in your life and the more it's like the more support you'll get, the more fulfillment you'll get. And so, you know, following your bliss is not this thing where you're like sort of checked out and unattached from the world. You're you're deeply immersed in the world in a way that's passionate and wanting to be of service and connected to people. So my role models, I was thinking about this, to some extent, they're all like uh, dead white guys. But yeah, I mean, Joseph Campbell and then Carl Jung, just because he was like way ahead of his time, he was thinking about and doing things that were so outside the mainstream that it required like an immense act of courage to do this. And I don't know how much people know about Carl Jung, but he was into astrology and synchronicity and all this stuff like in the early part of the 20th century. And so he was like really pushing the envelope, just doing it. Like he didn't worry about whether it would be, I mean, he did a little bit worry about whether it would be accepted and he slowly kind of rolled this stuff out. But at the same time, he was a real trailblazer. And so in the same sense, Ram Dass, I'm sure your listeners know Ram Dass, another example of a guy who was totally caught in like the square kind of condition, Western world. He was a Harvard professor and then he just you know, went to India and became Rondas. And then Rick Tarnas, one of my professors, another role model, he's, uh, he's pioneered with Stan Groff, this archetypal astrology and archetypal cosmology. And he's done all these things in a way that's very accessible to people, I think. And then lastly, I will say, I'll say Steve Jobs, because, you know, as much of a difficult person as he was, and as much anger as he had, he also believed in the potential of humanity. And he was the one who I think identified early on, like the potential for like using technology in a way that elevates the human. And I think that was his mm. whole life purpose. And that goes back to our whole conversation too. So, so yeah, Steve Jobs, I think was a real visionary. And he was also a person who was in love with India. And, you know, he said that doing psychedelics really was what created his entire vision and mission. So um, he was very like early in a lot of these things. Mm, I love that. I love that. And I waiting for the day, Chad, where, you know, <laughs> Your name is in that category. You know, there's Carl Jung, there's Steve Jobs, there's Ram Dass, and there's Chad Woodford. I don't know about yeah. that. I don't know about that, but we'll see. We'll see. <laughs> well, we'll see, we'll see how your hero's journey unfolds. You know? <laughs> right, right. <laughs> but this was a lot of fun, Chad. Thank you for all these insights. Yeah, and thank you. I know that I'm going to keep on reaching out to you mm. as the world unfolds and AI unfolds. And I'm, I either have my fears or my excitement. Uh-huh. I'm going to be like, can you confirm this, Chad? Yeah. Happy to do it. I appreciate that. So I'm sure our listeners are just as intrigued. If they want to follow your journey or follow your YouTube channel or whatever else, where can they find you? Yeah. So on Instagram and threads, I'm uh, Cosmic Wit, Cosmic Wit. And then my website is Cosmic.Diamonds. And the podcast is Cosmic Intelligence. And I guess you can still find me on Twitter or X or whatever it's called now uh, at CHD. But yeah, those are my addresses. Beautiful. So we will get those all linked into the show notes. Chad, this was a blast. Yeah. Thank you so much. I had so much fun. We'll have to sync up again soon. Yeah, so definitely. Thanks again. And thanks for spreading some knowledge and happiness with our audience. Talk to you later. It's my passion. Thanks, Brian. Take care.